Okay, folks, uh, Dino here. I'm just flying solo on this little mini-sode, follow-up, bonus ep, call it what you like. Uh, We spent so long, justifiably, by the way, and fantastically, talking to the terrific Joel Montgrand, uh, who, of course, plays Kavik in True Detective Series 4, Night Country. But there were quite a few other Easter eggs and connections that I wanted to cover. So this little ep is just going to tick off on those. I'm just going to do it in a quick hit. Here we go. Okay, so it turns out that it is Annie's tongue. The DNA matches, but the lab also said that it has cellular damage consistent with being frozen for a long time. So it's pretty clear that whoever murdered Annie, I mean, they're making you think that it's Clark because the tongue was found at Salal and, you know, they've got the facility to freeze things. But I was very surprised to find out that it was her tongue. I thought there's no way that they're going to have her tongue reappear after six years. But in fact, they did. So there you go. Now, Back at the trailer park, Navarro was called Liz to come and take a look at what's inside, right? And it's a mess. It it looks like it's been done by a crazy man. They've treated the inside of it like a blackboard. There's doodles and scribblings and mess everywhere. There's animal bones. I think Navarro said they were seal and caribou or something. And there's this very disturbing rag doll hanging from the ceiling, which looks a lot like the doll from series one. And there's a, uh, what appears to be a mannequin, a life-size mannequin of Annie on the bed dressed in her clothes. And of course the camera tilts up and there's a giant spiral or drawing of that spiral uh, motif that once again is connecting us back to series one. So we're seeing that Liz and Navarro are still at each other's throats. They're not friendly, but they have some similarities. Both are dogged and stubborn, both are tough, and they both want to be seen that justice is served and solved Annie Kay and the Salal mysteries. And they both have itches that they have to scratch. For Navarro, it's Annie Kay, and for Liz, it's Salal. Like the way she says to Ted, no way this is going to Anchorage. I'm going to deal with this. I'm up to the job. So we get another thing reference when Bryce, the high school teacher that Liz goes to see, the one that she was screwing, explains that the scientists at Salal were working on an extinct microorganism which might hold a cure for cancer. This idea of drilling in ice cores and looking for science is um, very thingy, of course. And I'm jumping all over the place here, folks. I doubt this is even in order of sequence within the episode, but I thought it was a really diverse musical episode. we got the Beach Boys, Little St. Nick, uh, the Skies. The Spice Girls want to be, and KC and the Sunshine Band's Get Down Tonight. So again, the contemporary music that they're selecting here, along with the score, is uh, really good. I thought it was interesting. I'm a, some of you know, I'm a, a cave diver, scuba instructor, technical diver. And the idea that they had ruptured eardrums fascinates me because when they were found, they didn't look like they were just covered in snow. They looked like they'd been either put in a hole and then water put on top of them or I don't know I just feel that there's water involved now you've only got to submerge a human six seven meters underwater and if you don't clear your ears those eardrums will rupture very quickly and I know from a guy I don't know him but I know of him he attempted a uh, world record of swimming under the polar ice free diving right so he's in a pair of speedos and nothing else. So he hasn't got goggles on. And he mentioned that when he did this, that his corneas froze over, even in the 90 seconds that he was um, underwater. So I'm thinking that if they were immersed in water, that would explain the ruptured eardrums and would also could account for the fact that their corneas are not so much burnt as, you know, like a cold burn or frostbitten, that kind of a vibe. 
I thought it was cool when Navarro tracks down where Clark got his tattoo and she phones the artist who's conveniently got not only the digital photo of, uh, of Clark's finished tattoo showing the swirl, but also sends Navarro, oh, I've got the inspiration for that. And of course, that's when we see that it's the back of Annie and the intimate photo of Annie topless but hugging Clark. And we see her from the rear, but it's clear that he got that in tribute to her because it was he got that, I think it was four days after Annie's murder. So there you go. So now having seen the connection, Liz can no longer deny that the Annie Kay and Solal cases are one and the same. She says to Navarro, so you want in or you want to go fuck yourself? Like, <laughs> this is really uh, not that pleased about it. So I thought it was a really telling moment when uh, Liz turns up at Navarro's house and Liz is putting away, help putting away the shopping and she's standing there with some cans in her hand and she says to Navarro, oh, have you changed where you put the cans? Keyword being changed. So it's clear that at one point, Liz and Navarro were, you know, kind of intimate. I don't mean intimate sexually, but intimate enough, friendly enough that Liz knew where everything went in her kitchen. So you don't get that from a stranger. So they were friends once upon a time, clearly not now. And we get a little hint to when Navarro tries to bring up, she says, so about the Wheeler thing and Liz cuts her off. So the Wheeler thing seems to be that's the Wheeler case, uh, which was the last time they worked together when they break into that isolated hut. And there's the guy, presumably the murderer, sitting in a chair and a dead woman at his feet. So either the offender is named Wheeler or the victim's named Wheeler all will be revealed. Anyway, so maybe it's the Tuttle cult from season one who worshipped the Yellow King. Is this what Rose is referring to when she says that this whole thing is older than Ennis and maybe even older than the snow. So maybe it's sort of, I don't know, there's something supernatural there. So Liz is in a situation where nobody really likes her. No one can stand her. Even the guys, you know, Ted, the guy that she's fucking is, then threatens her. So it's like her stepdaughter Leah can't stand her. Hank hates her guts. Pete's wife and grandma throw her out of the house when she slurs them after Granny felt pen some inupiate uh, tribal markings onto Leah's chin. And Liz says, oh, don't give me that laundromat grandma. So she's being very disrespectful. Kate and Kittrick can barely look at her because Liz has apparently bonked her husband. The teacher, Bryce, is dismissive of her. She's obviously used him and thrown him away. Ted's threatening her if she doesn't play political ball. About the only person who doesn't hate her yet <laughs> is Peter, but she's pushing him pretty hard. And uh, if she keeps uh, busting his ass like that, he's going to get jack of her as well. So she's on a bit of a path of destruction here. And again, the way that she treats her daughter and the way that she slurs Navarro with the animal spirit stuff, why is she so hell-bent on stopping her stepdaughter the chance to connect with her Anupiate heritage? Because it's clear from the flashback that her husband or partner at the time was Indigenous. So why she's gone from having a child with, presumably with him, which is Holden, why is she now so hostile about the Indigenous people in Ennis? I don't understand. So... In a few scenes, we see that Rose has, seems to have taken Navarro under her wing, and we get some backstory on Travis, who turns out to be a hippie lover. And whilst Rose gives spirit advice to Navarro, she rolls a joint, and we learnt that Travis had leukaemia, and he took his own life because he got sick. And she calls Travis, Travis Cole, confirming that he is in fact the father of Rust, and maybe Travis, like Rust in season one, are quite you know, in that supernatural vibe, they're open to that sort of thing. And so that makes total sense. So 
Liz turns up, of course, then at the motel of her visiting boss, Ted, and we quickly get this <laughs> graphic confirmation that Liz and Ted have been had this on and off again, little fuckfest for 19 years. Have we ever seen an uglier sex scene, by the way? I mean, the look on Ted's face during this and the idea of her being up on a on that chest of drawers, it was just, I'm assuming they did it on purpose, but uh, once you've seen Ted's face in those situations, I, I just can't unsee it, but anyway. Now, the next little thing that caught my eye was that I wondered, was it just coincidence that the only guy who survived the corpsicle, apart from the missing scientist Clark, who may or may not have been involved in Annie's murder, he's certainly involved with her, is it any coincidence that Lund is the only one who's got the spiral on his head and he's the one that survives? I don't know. Remains to be seen. Um, Pete questions the delivery driver who found the Salal station abandoned and he tells Peter that he saw Clark walking around naked ignored by the rest of the crew uh, in the station and he had a spiral tattoo on his chest. So it's Navarro, isn't it, that finds his credit card receipt and I see that the tattoo is $600. I'm like looking at that tattoo going, I haven't got ink yet, but I tell you what, $600 for that piece of shit, you get that done in prison for like half a packet of cigarettes or 50 bucks on the outside. So I found that a little bit odd, but anyway, something's going on about the water. We all assume it's the mine that has turned the water bad, but what if it's something to do with what the scientists have drilled out and released and unleashed, perhaps? Is it a bacteria? Is that causing hallucinations in the town? Or are the people who are seeing these visions, is it because of something in the water? I don't know. Is Rose mentally ill or is she actually seeing Travis's ghost? Because she alludes to Navarro about her sister, hey, don't confuse mental illness with talking to the spirit world. So it remains to be seen whether Rose is A or B. So I was right about Hank. I said there was something wrong with this guy and he proved it in episode two. He turns up at the ice rink and bitch slaps Peter for taking his, in inverted commas, case file on Annie Kay. So he feels that this is his personal property, not is the fact, it's the property of the Ennis Police Department and should be stored accordingly. Hank originally presents as a flunky and harmless, but he's increasingly reminding me of from Mindhunter when they go and they interview Richard Speck, brilliantly played by the way, by the actor Jack Eddy. He can just turn on a sixpence and he can go from gormless to quite dangerous on a sixpence. And based on how Leah later reacts to the bruise forming on Peter's cheek, she says something like, he's an animal. It's clear that this is not the first time that this has happened and that there's a history of abuse of Peter by Hank. Hank looks quite menacing when he's warning his son and reprimanding him for his betrayal. He says, Danvers doesn't own you. You have family and she's not it. Blood is blood. Remember that. So that's a clear threat. And that's Hank is exerting his authority over Peter. And then, but just prior to that, we see him texting his Russian bride, Alina, who is asking for money for Russian mama's medicine and Pete, uh, Hank rather, he texts back, I don't have much left, but I'll send you the money for the medicine. So it's clear that he's the only one stupid enough or arrogant enough or whatever that he doesn't realize that he's being catfished by this woman. I doubt she's even gonna turn up. I think she's just gonna bleed him dry and he's too stupid to realize it. So he's getting played like a cheap guitar and that's the way he is. So then Pete has the brainwave to get the scientist's phones and use the face recognition on it to unlock their phone. And they see the TikTok video that Melina, the chef who was making Clark the sandwich, you remember how he had the phone propped up and you could see that it was live streaming as he was making that sandwich. And then just as he gives it to Clark, or he's about to, Clark turns around and says, she's awake. And then the power goes off. So then Liz and Navarro are up to speed with what we saw 
in the opening of season one, so they know that something's going on. Like the scene where Navarro goes to Kavik's bar and she sort of works out that one of the patrons in the bar, Chuck Mosley, although he denies knowing the photo of Raymond Clark, she knows that he knows something. So she doorsteps him a little while later and basically threatens him with the rest. He's obviously got you know something in his jacket that she could hook him on if she wants. And this character, Chuck, admits that his cousin sold a trailer to Clark seven years ago. That cousin, I think, if I've got the family trees right, that cousin is actually Rust Cole, Matthew McConaughey's character in season one. So this is before he left Alaska because he's living up there with his dad, Travis, who's the hippie boyfriend of Rose. He tells us what has happened to Rust because he says, he tells Navarro that his cousin sold it to Clark before his cousin died of cancer, bone cancer. That's leukemia. And that's what Travis died of. So maybe Rust has died of leukemia, just like his dad, who knows? And in True Detective 1, Rust said that he came back from Alaska to, quote, make things right before he died. So we saw how skinny Rust was in season one. I haven't seen that for years, so I can't remember if it was implied that he had cancer at the time, and that's why he was so skinny, or whether it was just a, you know, a character decision by either Matthew or by the producers, I don't know. But we know from Dallas Buyers Club how committed Matthew can be to getting down to a certain weight for uh, the physicality of a role. So I don't know. We'll have to wait and see how that one plays out. All right, what else have I got? Okay, I I thought it was hilarious that Liz bullies Peter into staying at the ice rink to guard the bodies and doesn't let him go home and put his son Darwin to bed. But then Liz drives over to his house where it turns out her stepdaughter's being looked after by Peter's wife and his wife's mother, Uh, So Grandma, who was the one that was telling Darwin those spooky stories which triggered him to draw the uh, spooky drawing back in uh, episode one. And then having picked up the daughter, she then goes home to hang up Christmas decorations. I guess it's good to be the boss. She's left Peter there. But the fact that she's doing the decorations, does this now mean, listeners, that we can count Night Country as a, just like Die Hard, is it now a Christmas series if not a christmas film so as i touched on we've got a few unknowns cleared up this week we see liz dancing with her ex-husband slash partner whose name is jake peterson and we see holden lying on the floor playing with lego when she goes to pick up her daughter from peter's house we also see some lego on the floor i suppose it's not uncommon for kids to have lego but nothing appears in a shot in a production like this by accident I mentioned in the podcast with Joel and Lisa that I call bullshit on a couple of things. And so when we go back to the bodies in the snow, one of the troopers, uh, Wilson, snaps off a frozen arm from the body of Dr. Lund and that triggers him to wail and scream. And he, by the way, if you look at him doing that and then go back and watch the thing, it's another clear reference. But this is bullshit. It's like if his arm is frozen solid so it snaps like a piece of uncooked spaghetti, then there's no way the rest of the body is going to be in enough state to be alive at all, let alone become conscious and start screaming and wailing. So anyway, uh, later on we find as uh, Liz is on the phone to the hospital when she's out and about, the nurse tells uh, Liz that, look, he's in an induced coma, you can't talk to him. We know he's lost his arm and she says he's going to lose at least one leg. So uh, where he ends up, I don't know. But there's no reason to save him in the script and no reason for him to be there unless at some point he does become conscious and is able to add something to the whole story. Otherwise, there's no point for him to just 
you know, if she gets called and says he died, then what was the point? He may as well have stayed part of the corpsicle. So we're going to hear more from Dr Lund, I would imagine. And then also we've got Peter babysitting the corpsicle waiting for it to defrost over 48 hours, yet they've got Lund in the hospital and he's already in an induced coma and they're going to operate. The fact that Lund was alive, it sort of suggests that they were frozen only a few hours before they were discovered, right? If they'd been out there for 48 hours, they'd all be dead, absolutely, right? And seven of them or six of them were, and Lund is alive and um, Clark is in the wind. So the fact that he was still alive and the fact that their clothes were folded up neatly, Navarro stumbles onto them, all their clothes folded and shoes aligned nicely, they weren't buried in snow, they just had a bit of snow drift over them. So that, again, indicates that the bodies weren't actually there very long before ghostly Travis points rose towards their bodies. A couple of other things in the links to the show notes of the original pod, you'll find a link to the um, Dyatlov Pass incident that I referred to as well. That was nine Soviet hikers who died in the Ural Mountains in 1959 under mysterious circumstances. So overnight, something caused them to cut their way out of their tents and flee the campsite, and they were inadequately dressed, as our scientists are in this. So, as I mentioned, when they found them, of myster- I don't think they could establish cause of death other than exposure. Two of the bodies had their eyes gouged out. One had a missing tongue, folks, and the other one had missing eyebrows. So what that's all about, I don't know. So just to wrap up this little solo recap, in trailer two, I think it is, we see footage of the scientist Anton Kotov, and it's just a half a frame, half a it's, a, it's a few frames, half a second perhaps, of him looking horrified and turning around and looking at something over the shoulder of the camera, and he's wearing the infamous parka with a smiley face on it that was originally worn by Annie and later on we see worn by Clark. So either it's a flashback to something maybe they tell the story in the later episodes they show what's happening when things go tits up at the station so maybe there is when in flashback we see clark racing down the ladder and running around the sub basement of the station we see clark with a shotgun so it's either a flashback or well they can't reanimate kotov so it's got to be a flashback so i'm tipping we're going to see who they are and so if you missed it the dead scientists in the popsicle are lee g Lucas Merrins, Facundo Molina, the guy making the sandwich, and Via Meta. So we've got Lund in the hospital, and then Clark is the only one who's on the loose. So he's sort of, he. they want us to believe that he's the primary suspect, but that would be too pat and obvious, wouldn't it, for something like True Detective? So something's going on. What is going to become of the fact that they found a full handprint and the bottom of one of the scientist's boots from out on the snow? And finally... Clark's biography on the Salal website shows the Irishman is one scientist on the research team who specialises in paleomicrobiology. So that's the study of microorganisms associated with prehistoric material. So before joining Salal in 2005, his research career focused on understanding the molecular basis of colonisation and infection by Staphylococcus aureus. Now, that's the scientific name, but you might know it as Golden Staph. So this is a very common infection in hospitals and other places. And it's become known as one of the sort of most infamous infections that is antibiotic resistant. So if you get golden staph, there's a limited amount that uh, even the best of medical science can do to help treat you. So essentially Clark was studying golden staph. I don't know what that means, but I I worry about or wonder about the water. And I've just put a pin in that background of Clark and we'll see where that leads us. 
Okay, I'm going to repeat the show links from the other episode in here and you can follow up on that. And we will look forward to um, the next episode, which is now a whole, what, five days away. We've got to wait. Plenty of time for speculation. Join us on the Facebook group. Just uh, search for True Detective Fans. Actually, I'll put a link in the uh, show notes for that as well. And uh, we shall see. I hope to see you on the boards with your theories about where we go from here. And of course, tune in next week for our breakdown of episode three. With that, for Killer Casting, this is Laughing Out. Out.